living in a harsh environment without modern science, you'd imagine all kinds of things. Find explanations that don't stand up to 20th century science. And that would be called magic at the time. And there are place names connected to these stories. So you have a place with the troll as the first half of the name. They're quite common all over Iceland, really, stories of trolls. One of the more interesting ones for the West Fjord is the story of the three trolls who tried to dig a canal and separating the West Fjord from the rest of Iceland. They only come out during night time, and these three were digging two fjords, and they became so occupied with digging that they forgot the time, and they ended up trying to flee to their homes, heading north, and they all became stone when the sun rose. We have these three separate pillows of rock that are said to be trolls. Stories are always stories, enjoyable in the dark nights of winter. And there are little verses from other parts of Iceland where they tell you that you should always be aware of the people of Strandil. They might be magicians. What has always intrigued me about Iceland is its connection with nature. You can soak in geothermal hot springs, forage the woods for plant-based foods, or watch your very own magic show in the night sky with the northern lights. But there's other sorts of magic there too. I'm your host, Amy, and I've just finished editing our brand new Rough Guide to Iceland, which has really left me with a longing to visit the place. Maybe part of that fascination comes from living in the concrete jungle that is London, but there's no denying that Iceland has this natural rugged beauty, like an icy version of the Lake District in England, packed with awe-inspiring views in every direction. Most people choose to go to Reykjavik. There's the selfie central Blue Lagoon, towering Hakrimskikja, a huge Lutheran church, and even a good old run tour pub crawl with the locals. With Rough Guide Trips, you can discover these sites and create your very own itinerary with our tailor-made trip service. Just head to roughguides.com to start planning your visit to Iceland. But what does the rest of the country have to offer? I wanted to find out about the roads less travelled in Iceland. And in fact, there's just one, really. The Ring Road around the island, which heads to the West Fjords to a small coastal town called Holmavik. Well, my name is Magnus Rapsson, and uh, I live in Strandi region in, in Iceland. So I moved here when I was in the middle 20s uh, and started here as a teacher. Could you describe a bit about the town of Holmavik, whereabouts it's located? Holmavik is on the eastern part of the West Fjords, the northwestern part of Iceland. It's about 300 kilometres from Reykjavik. Holmi is uh, a little islet 
and the Wyk is a cove. It's sitting in the middle of the largest fjord in, in that area. It started as a fishing village and a trading post. Could you describe a bit about the landscape of the western fjords themselves, what they sort of look like? High mountains with basalt rock cliffs, fairly flat on the top, and then maybe squeeze down to narrow fjords. Winter storms come from right from the Arctic. Can be quite an adventure with the blizzards. A lot of the people that come here to the West Fjords are people that are coming to Iceland for the second or third time. So they come first to maybe to Reykjavik and see the golden circle of waterfalls and, and geysers and stuff like that. And then they want to see something different and then they come to the West Fjord. It, it's a rugged area and therefore interesting. Holmavik sounds just like any other town, but for an area that's so remote, it's home to one peculiar, unexpected attraction. Uh, the museum in Holmavik. We needed something new. It was quite early for thinking about tourism. To an Icelander, what is remarkable about the stranded area, the witch hunts in the 17th century. So we started researching that area and the folk tales and stuff like that. We ended up with a lot of stories about magicians or sorcerers. So Magnus and his friends decided to open the Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft in 2000 to demystify the long tradition of Icelandic witchcraft. When you look at uh, a map of Iceland uh, marked with uh, all the cases of witchcraft or sorcery that came up uh, during the witch hunts, the majority of the cases came up in the, in the West Fjords. If we were to walk into the museum, what sort of things would we see and what sort of things do you think we would learn from it? You'd come across uh, a map of Iceland uh, showing where all the witchcraft cases came up and then you'd see various stuff that comes mostly from these magic books of magic like an invisible boy with a sign that made him invisible uh, on lignite you'd see the necropants which is a way of acquiring wealth into your scrotum and uh, you'd see another strange thing which is uh, made from a bone with head on both sides and wool over it which was used to steal milk from sheep and cows out in the pastures. So it had something to do with the landscape, the difficulties of living here in former times. You go through the remnants of books of magic in manuscripts and uh, there are a few from the 17th century but people also in this area kept on copying them. Well, uh, I don't know if you could call it mundane, but things like how to fight from the Arctic fox, which is the only mammal here which prey on, on the sheep. Different ways to get a girl to love you. Demonology just doesn't appear in these things. It's just uh, some remnant from the medieval times, partly, and, and uh, a kind of popular beliefs and healing processes with plants and, and uh, strange things from nature that you find around here. 
protection against evil or protection against uh, the authorities and any injustice and with them you have invocations which uh, might even mention not only the Virgin Mary but along with her the old Scandinavian gods of Thor and Odin. So it's, it's a kind of a, uh, mi mixture. I asked if there were any spells Magnus could read me. I'm reaching into my bookshelf. Try to find one in English here. Uh, there should be some. Let's see. It is as follows. It shall be made in lead. And when a man expects his enemies, he shall imprint it on his forehead. We have to stop here. I think the uh, the recorder just probably stopped. So I'm trying to find what's happening there. No, it's still recording. Thou wilt conquer him. Uh, there was a belief that uh, you had to copy it on your, by your own hand, so nobody would give, get an old one. And uh, they were copied in the 18th and 19th and into the 20th century. They were copied by hand, and the oldest ones we have are from the beginning of the 17th century, but the, uh, the youngest ones are from the 1920s, when people were still copying things. They'd borrow a copy, but they had to return it according to the tradition. So, but they're incredibly true copies. You can find examples of uh, magic in the 17th century books, and the magical sign would be the same, and the text would even be word to word the same as in the 20th century. So people kept up the tradition, but Icelanders were very devoted to writing stuff. So the tradition lived on, maybe you would say today, underground, far away from the authorities. Many of the objects that were used in magic, some with runic carvings, and then you'd have a, a huge genealogical table over all the priests and sheriffs in, in Westeros during the time in the 17th century, because they were all related. There's a distinction there between those who were prosecuting the priests and the sheriffs. We know very little about the general population. Well, it, it's just a part of the heritage of the area. So, uh, the same as the stories of magic here. So, it, it, it's, well, superstitious, you could say, but it's a popular culture in, in a way, partly because this area was uh, far away from any authorities. Stranded, for example, northern most part of the West Fjords, there were several days' walk between churches, but the farms in between were very isolated. So you'd have a kind of popular culture developing in these places, I think. 
Unlike the rest of Europe at the time, most of the people who were prosecuted for using magic in Iceland were men rather than women. Witch hunts in mainland Europe really gained momentum in the 16th century in countries including Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands and northern France. Those targeted were predominantly working-class women who experienced punishments including imprisonment, flogging, fines, exile and even death. Over 50,000 victims were burned at the stake. But as we know, it was a different story in Iceland. So what were the punishments they came up against? Here in the Strandir, the first big burnings happened north of Holmavik, where three men were burnt in 1654. It sort of imprinted the idea of the area where sorcerers come from. This was reflected again in later folk tales of the area of all kinds of strange men that practiced some kind of witchcraft, or sorcery would be the right word, because it's very different from the witchcraft in Europe. Part of it was, would probably be because these were isolated areas where people kept on to old uh, healing processes. Even here in, in this area where I live in, there's a case which came to the parliament, which was also a Supreme Court in, in Iceland in the 17th century. And the sheriff had uh, prosecuted a man here for owning uh, nine pages of a book of magic. His neighbours were against him being punished because they thought he didn't do any harm, even though he had the book. But the Supreme Court decided that he had to be whipped for owning the book and the book should be burned under his nose while he was being whipped. It all sounds pretty brutal, if you ask me. Well, it's not as brutal as, as uh, burning people on no proof or very little proof of anything, any harm being done. So the idea of punishing people for magic comes from Europe, mainly from Denmark through the orders from the king. The first came to Iceland in 1615 but nobody was prosecuted until 1630. So people here obviously had other ideas than people in Europe, and the kind of craziness that appeared in places in Europe never appeared here. Maybe because there were no villages or towns in Iceland at the time, and some of the areas, like in the Westfjords, were so isolated that even in some places you didn't have a priests living in the area and many of the sheriffs would be living somewhere else and came annually maybe to pick up any pieces. So a witch craze didn't really happen compared to Europe. So how does Magnus know all these stories? He told us the story of a particular individual, Jan the Learned. It was through him that many of these folkloric tales are still preserved today. Jón the Learned was uh, a unique man in many ways. He was uh, born and raised in north of Holmavik, 90 kilometers north by road. In his 20s, he was a professional scribe, copying manuscripts. And then he ended up opposing the authority because of the killing of Basque whalers in the west of the Westfjords. And he wrote a treatise criticizing the sheriffs heavily for that. 
but he kept on writing. And one of his most famous uh, writings is three poems he wrote against a ghost. And he used his uh, poetry to free the people of the ghost, which was terrorizing one part of the Westfjords. The things we know about popular culture of the 17th century comes from his workings. So he was quite unique and, and special guy. We have a little corner in the, in the museum dedicated to his work. Whilst in many parts of Iceland, tourism has risen, the mountains and valleys of the West Fjords are much less crowded. I got the impression from Magnus that by opening the museum, he was creating a sustainable method of attracting tourists to a lesser-known area of Iceland while simultaneously preserving some of the overlooked history of the landscape. So, has it worked? It increased tourism quite a lot. One survey which was done a few years after the museum opened, it showed that quite a lot of tourists came to Holmavik even just to visit the museum. Some of these were obviously people interested in, in magic and sorcery from Europe and they came here just to see what it was like and how Iceland was compared to Europe or even people with real interest like Goths coming here and looking at the signs and copying them and tattooing them later on. After the financial crash in 2008 and after the eruption of the Eyjafjallajökull yogurt volcano, uh, there was a boom in tourism and it's uh, still quite a lot of tourists. But uh, they're mostly come to see the volcanic areas and Reykjavik and we're not seeing the same kind of boom even though there's a lot more tourists now than there were 20 years ago. And most people look favorably on it. People are not complaining, not really. Not in the countryside, at least. When you first opened your museum, what was the reaction like? Did you get much of a response from like, any local families in the area? Well, people to start with were suspicious in a way, especially older people. Uh, they thought that this, this was something that shouldn't be doubled with. You, you shouldn't be uh, awakening up some old stories and, and and stuff like that. But after seeing the museum, most of these people just welcomed it. It's, it's informative, but it, we're not trying to start a culture or anything like that. The people in Estrantir are not ashamed of their magic heritage they're more proud of it today. But I also think that people are looking differently at what happened in the 17th century. Obviously thought to be superstitious and stupid. But now people look upon it more as a cultural phenomenon. So, for the curious visitor, would they be able to find a few spots of magic in the West Fjords today? <laughs> I haven't come across it recently.
I always knew that Icelandic people had a strong connection with nature, but now I can see how they are actually entwined with it. There are enchanting stories behind the unspoiled national parks, snow-capped mountains and dramatic fjords. These stories of myths, legends about trolls, witchcraft and magic tell me more about the West Fjord's ethereal landscapes than I first thought. While outdoor activities like hiking and swimming are still popular in this isolated region, there's a whole historical and cultural side to take in too. There is more to the West Fjords and Iceland itself than meets the eye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rough Guides. If you're feeling inspired, head to roughguides.com to book your own tailor-made trip. Subscribe to our feed on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. We'll be back in two weeks' time with an episode all about the alternative histories of World War II in advance of our new guidebook on the liberation route in Europe. In the meantime, check out our sister podcast, Insight Guides, next week to hear about the history of cruises. This episode was presented by me, Amy White, and produced by Femi Oriogan-Williams for Reduce Listening.